This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. So let's see what we got. First up, Captain Retro wanted to follow up on the question from last week about Extron crosspoints in sync. And the one piece of information I didn't have last week is they're trying to run everything into the HD15 port of a RetroTINK 4K. So doing it that way, you really don't have anything to worry about because that could accept both 75 ohm and TTL level sync voltages. So my conclusion last week of, you know, just give it a try with that BNC discard cable and see if it works, that actually applies to this as well. Just use the standard BNC to VGA cable and see what happens and it should just work. But that definitely isn't going to hurt anything on there. For whatever reason, there might be something that steps the voltage down too much if you have those switches set. But it, that's, once again, you get no signal. You're not going to send over voltage. So it should be totally fine. The other thing, um, I don't want to get too off topic here because I could probably do an entire video on this. But if you're using the HD15 port for connection to an Extron crosspoint, that means you could connect component video, RGB, S-video, and composite all through that, and VGA, all through that port, all through your cross point. So if that's something that you're interested in, let me know and I could elaborate a little bit more. If not, I probably should do a video on that relatively soon just to kind of show everybody the options. But that's how I was testing it when I had my cross point integrated into this setup. And it was very cool. Set your input, you know, set the output to the tink, and then just choose the input in the tink 4K without switching a single cable. So that's pretty cool as well. But if you're just running RGB, then you don't have to worry about any of that. Fire away and see what you get. Next up, Richard Kingston also wanted to follow up with the discussion from last week about trying to run N64's composite video through an RGB setup. And Richard clarified, if I'm understanding this correctly, if not, please correct me in the comments or anything or just talk about it again next week. But if I'm understanding correctly, Richard has an N64 that already has an RGB mod installed in it, but they also want the ability to have composite video. And that's something that I completely agree with. And one of the setups I'm building over there, which hopefully I'll have time to do a video on at some point, is exactly this. It is RGB and composite at the exact same time. And the way that you would do that is not by uh, two cables, but by running an RGB SCART cable with composite video as sync. Now, you might have heard over the years me always recommending C-Sync cables, and I still stand by that recommendation with this one exception if you want access to both signals. The reason I suggest C-Sync is because there's less to worry about in most scenarios, provided the cable is built property, properly, um, there's less chance of interference. There's less chance of compatibility issues. However, if you know that you have a setup that can handle it, like you're not using an Extron crosspoint and you're using a well-shielded, well-built cable, then what you could end up doing is just having both. So now, obviously, if you're running an OSSC, you're not going to get composite through that because it doesn't handle composite video. But if you're using a RetroTINK 5X or 4K, or even if you're going into an RGB monitor, you could then just run it in a way where you could toggle between inputs and have both at the same time. So 
that's one of the advantages of doing it that way is having access to both signals. And I could completely see a scenario where most of your N64 games you want to play in RGB on a CRT or on a, a scaler either, I guess. But occasionally you might hit a game, and F0 is the first one that comes to mind for me, that you might prefer in composite just because it's it's an awesome game, but it's also an ugly game. All of those effects that they used were really designed around composite video and CRTs. And the more you clean that game up, at least in my opinion, I'm sure other people might think it's a work of art, but I just think it gets very ugly the sharper it gets. So if I was playing N64 on a CRT, I would actually prefer to use F0 via composite video. So the way I have been accomplishing this is I got a bunch of Syncon composite SCART cables, plugged them into original consoles, and ran them through the latest version of the G-SCART switch. And then you just have one output uh, going to the RGB input, and the other output with a basic cheap breakout adapter going to composite video, and then you just toggle inputs on your TV in real time to, to get both. Obviously, this would mean that you have to use a monitor that accepts both signals or, or CRT if you're in uh, if you're in Europe. But yeah, it could absolutely accomplish that. So if that's what you're looking to do, just get any cable for the Super Nintendo or N64 that syncs on composite video, and you should have the option for both. If I got your question wrong, please let me know. But it was a, it was a fun excuse to kind of talk about that and tease the new setup I have going on over there. Next up, the dressing gown wants to know why some consoles that could support 480p only do so over component video and not over SCART. And I'm pretty sure the answer to that is the component video standard was supposed to accept 15 kilohertz signals all the way up to 1080i. And technically, you could run 1080p on them, but that's what it was originally released for. And the SCART standard was supposed to be only 15 kilohertz. And there absolutely is nothing stopping you from running that signal over that connector. But the SCART standard is a set of standards that's supposed to, when you see that connector, know that it adheres to those standards. Now, the PlayStation 2 and 3 can both get 480p using Sync on Green. And uh, I believe the Wii Palwies can do that as well over RGB, but not NTSC. And there's different ways of hacking things and running it however you'd like. But uh, even the original Xbox is 480i only over SCART, unless, of course, you, you, know, you run a soft mod or you're running component video over SCART. So I think the answer is really just as easy as component video is always designed as a standard to handle multiple resolutions, while when the SCART standard was released, it, there was only 15 kilohertz for TV at that time. They had PCs were higher resolution, but I think when the SCART standard was released, um, you know, higher than than 15 kilohertz CGA graphics was was like not very common, very expensive type of thing. I think it was, you know, by that time, everything really was still 15 kilohertz. So I think that's basically it. Uh, it's a great question. And I maybe I'm missing something here, but you're, you're all welcome to correct me if I did. But I think that's basically it. It was part of the component video standard, not part of SCART. Next up, Scott Linux has a random NES audio quality question for me. They have an RGB modded NES and also a stock NES. They can't tell any difference in audio quality comparing both. Do I happen to know if the NES RGB mod taps into better audio or is it just video only? So I haven't done an NES RGB mod in a very, very long time, but I'm pretty sure it had its own audio circuit on there which some people, depending on the installation, chose to bypass. Other people used it. Uh, other people 
use the stock NES when bypassing. Others used a completely different circuit. So I'm pretty sure it all depends on how you wired that installation, but I think it has its own audio components on it. And it's meant to be true to the original. It's not meant to do anything other than, you know, output decent quality audio. But I think this is one of those things, and I'm sure I'm going to have a bunch of my friends messaging me angry when I say this, but I think this is a, an issue that if the NES audio steps down in quality, you introduce hum or buzz, or you're playing one of those awful clone consoles with terrible audio, I think in that case, your average person would notice. But I think when you're talking about things like this and certain quality enhancements, I, I think the people who notice a difference are people who are not only really into the NES, but also have an ear for audio and pitch and sounds which not everybody does. And that's not an insult or a compliment. It's just some people are tall, some people are short, whatever, it's fine. Uh, so my opinion on this is if you've done an NES RGB mod, regardless of how you've done the audio, if it sounds fine to you, you've won. And I really wouldn't go any farther than that. I would only start hunting things down as if, if you start hearing things that you don't like about your setup that you don't hear on a stock NES. But you already said that's not the case, so sounds like you've already won and you got a good setup, but it was still a good question. Next up, last week, I think I misunderstood the question that Dr. Claw had, and they clarified this time that they're having issues with the Wakaba Video RGB to component video box. And in the same exact setup with the same PS2, Dreamcast, and cables, the RGB to comp for MetroTINK worked fine. So um, what could possibly be the issue? And I have to very respectfully say there's no way for me to tell that unless I did a deep dive on that converter. It's possible that the conversion circuit that's built into it has some issues. It's possible that it works fine in every other case, but it just so happens that in your combination it doesn't. But I, I just want to say that this type of conversion is so much harder than people think. And I've had so many people tell me over the years very pompous things like, oh, I have a data sheet for that. I could just make one. That's fine. I don't need to buy HD retrovision cables. I don't need to buy an RGB to comp. I'll just download this data sheet and make one. Yeah. Good luck, because this is what normally happens. And I'm not saying that's what Jam did. Jam makes very good stuff. I've had very good luck with all of mine. I'm just using that as an example just to articulate how it seems like an easy thing, but it actually isn't, because there are so many factors involved. How you write, uh, route the traces, the type of power supply that you've built into this to make sure that everything's filtered, the type of um, low-pass filtering that you do at different resolutions. Can it handle multiple resolutions, or can it only handle one? There's so many things that factor in, and each one of them has their own set of problems that don't actually exist with TV signals. So if you were talking about you get RGB SCART out of a DVD player in Europe and you just want to go to component video, that same converter and those same generic circuits might work perfect. But you start sending it 240p, you start sending it at the very odd refresh rates that we use, things can go haywire. So the, you know, so many people accuse me of being biased and not disclosing my friendship with Mike Chi. And none of that matters when I tell people you should probably just grab the RGB to comp. The only thing that matters is ones and zeros and the testing that we've done on those products and th that we, meaning everybody, has done on those. So I would reach out to Jam and see if there's anything he could do, any suggestions. It's also possible something that damaged in shipping. You never know. I mean, I've seen packages hurled across parking lots before. You never know. One SMD component might have popped off or something like that. 
But it could be a compatibility issue. It could be that you just got to bump one. But uh, I think, and I, I don't mean to um, take away from your concern, but I think if you have a solution that's working for you, just stick with that and just kind of use that other device as a you know a tool for testing. Or you know if you have to return it, maybe he'll accept a return on there as well. But the point is, I think you've solved the problem with another piece of hardware. So at least that's some kind of good news, right? Next up, an excellent question from Durf that I do not have an answer for. Durf wants to know if I have any recommendations for products to buff or polish scratches on the outside of consoles. Um, one Twitter thread mentions using car polish for GameCube jewels, which would probably work for all clear plastics, but no idea if that would be safe for all console plastics. And Smoke Monsters also recommended pipe polish. So I've seen different effects of those, and I I don't use them at all because I've also seen the negative effects. I've seen people take a piece of plastic that looks unfixable and make it look almost like it just came out of the factory with zero negative side effects, even after years. And I've personally tried to use polish on something that just, it was it ended up making it look like I used sandpaper. So, you know, I ruined the finish, it ruined the texture. And it wasn't supposed to be that abrasive of a polish. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like using Brasso on a cartridge. It was supposed to be a mild, uh, you know, cream that you put on for something like that. So I definitely wouldn't be comfortable giving any advice on that. I know uh, Tito from Macho Nacho and Tian Fong use this uh, aerospace thing. Um, it was one of the, la the last Tito videos, but that really does clean up the plastic a lot. It does leave like a little bit of a, a finish on it so that you can kind of feel with your hands, but not too bad. And you can buff it off mostly. Uh, but that's a great question. And one that I would love to know the answer to, because if your plastic has texture on it, I think that's going to be a problem. And I think that's also why clear plastics might be less of a worry because you're supposed to just buff it to be a perfectly smooth and clear finish. Whereas on some of the textured plastics like SNES, NES, all that stuff, you would notice it would be too smooth and it would look like a smudge or a damage to it. So what what is out there that people would recommend? Um, you know, And also just a polite reminder, when you recommend stuff in the comments, if you drop a link, it's just gonna disappear. It won't even go to my held for review bin. Most YouTube, uh, most links in YouTube comments just disappear forever, never to be seen again. So if you have a suggestion, please spell out the product and don't just drop a link in because I don't want good comments and good suggestions just to accidentally disappear. And I also don't want any of you thinking I'm deleting comments from people who are trying to help. So uh, yeah, just type in the description of what it is if you have any suggestions. Next up, Tim the Gamer 23 wants to know, are there any specific games I would like to see limited run games re-release? Personally, they'd like to see Crusader of Senti for the Genesis get a new physical release. I didn't really like that game. I think I'm the only person on the planet that doesn't, but it came out years after A Link to the Past, but still felt very unpolished. Uh, and I felt like after that much time had passed, they could have had one that was that felt a little bit better. The controls felt slippery and loose in that one. It wasn't a bad game at all, but when I heard it was a, a Zelda-like game for Genesis, I was kind of disappointed. Um, but anyway, to answer your actual question, I want to see stuff that solves a problem. So here's a great example. Mega Man Wily Wars. For a long time, you had to download a ROM and then you had to download whichever patches you wanted. And if you wanted save game support to work you, uh, on an EverDrive, you had to use that patch as well as some of the other patches, 50, 60 Hertz, all of that stuff. And it's very hard to forget which one is okay. And 
you know, even if you have a ROM that's like, okay, I'm going to play this when I have time to, it's already patched. A month goes by and you might've forgotten what patches you applied. So then you got to start from scratch. Maybe there's a new combination out there. It's, it got confusing. And then when, uh, I think it was Retrobit did the re-release, it was like, okay, here's something pre-vetted using Renee's boards. So it's a safe cartridge to plug in. I'm pretty sure that one was using Renee's boards. So now I get to just buy it and use it like it was supposed to work. Funny because it turns out Wily Wars wasn't nearly as good as I had hoped it would be. I did that live stream where I showed that alongside of the developer Infidelity's release for the port to the SNES, and I liked that better. Um, but that's, that's my point, is something that solves a problem. So any of these games with full English translations or retranslations to make them better, that's an awesome way to go about doing it. Stuff that was only released in 50 hertz PAL that could be now released at 60 hertz worldwide. Things that solve a problem are the stuff that I'm totally 100% behind. Um, and I guess I also don't mind seeing games that even if I'm not really interested in it, if you want the original cartridge only, it's like 200 bucks. And I just know so many people that when they like a game, they want the physical media. In fact, that includes people that also own every single ROM car and ODE out there still go out and buy games when they, they just want to have the game that they know that they like. And the rest of them, they might occasionally try, but it's not a thing to them. So that's the other time I like to see it is when it are, it's games that are so expensive that you don't really want to spend that much money on it. And it's more about collectors trying to make money than actually playing games. Those are the ones I like to see have quality re-releases. But I think most important than anything else is making sure that what you're buying today is of good quality. There was one company just bragging on social media about how all of their new releases are great quality. And in a private chat, I have a couple of my friends immediately started snickering, showing pictures of some of their releases that have still been terrible. So it's uh, that's the most important thing. If you're going to give somebody a decent amount of money for something, you want to know that it's at least built correctly and not slapped together. And I don't think any of the prices of these, especially the limited run games, I don't think there are any of them have been overpriced. Some of them are expensive, but you also have to remember, I bought Virtua Racing for $75 when it was new. Adjusted for inflation, isn't that like 150 bucks now? So, you know, spending 80 bucks on a retro game today is fair, as long as it's built correctly. That's the only time I complain about price. When you have something running at the wrong voltage that's not even beveled and you're spending 80 bucks on it, no, absolutely not. So those are just my thoughts on it. Um, well, all of them are opinions except for the whole make sure your cartridge is built correctly. That should be a fact, but those are just my opinions. Um, and you know, feel free to flame me in the comments for not really liking Crusader of Senti, but I did finish the game. It wasn't a bad game. I just, I was expecting more out of it, I guess. But yeah, it'd be kind of fun to see. Next up, Outer Zevin wants to know if anybody knows how to set up Xtron devices with custom profiles for infrared commands. They have the IR programming and Xtron global configurator software, but can't seem to get the device to recognize the profiles they create. Uh, I have never done that before, but I do know a bunch of people who have started to work on automating their Xtron equipment, and they've done so with some custom code that they've written. Uh, so I would just kind of look around, maybe check the retro RGB discord and just ask to see if anybody in any of the communities that you're hanging out in has done this already. And maybe they'd be willing to share it with you. 
Uh, as far as IR stuff goes, just also make sure that your IR extenders are working properly. Um, make sure that they're positioned properly. Because one of the things that I always ran into, especially back in the mid 2000s, when I liked to hide equipment so that you didn't see everything, which is funny because now obviously I like to proudly display all my equipment, but you would take those IR sensors and stick them to the front of your cable box, VCR, DVD player, whatever. You'd stick it to the front and then you'd close everything up and you'd use your remote and it wouldn't work. And then you'd pull that IR extender off and you'd move it a millimeter to the right and it would work flawlessly. So I would make sure to check that. And that's something I have experience with that I could recommend. But as far as the actual programming goes, I've, I've never even seen the interface before. So I'm completely useless to you. My apologies. But hopefully there's somebody listening or somebody in one of the Discord servers you hang out at that would be able to help. Well, that's it for this week. As always, if you have any questions at all, please ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, like you saw today, I just like scrolling through in real time as if we were hanging out somewhere together, having a chat. And just another friendly reminder that anywhere you support, feel free to ask the questions. It just so happens that most of the time the questions are only on Patreon just because that's where most people support. But there's also Floatplane, Kofi, the YouTube monthly support stuff. And you know, basically anywhere you support, let me know. And if I missed your question or if I screwed something up, just DM me. It's never intentional. Uh, I just Sometimes things get deleted in post or sometimes I just misunderstand the question. So uh, anything you need, let me know. And as always, just thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible because it really is you who's keeping all this stuff going. So thanks again, and I'll see you next week.